A reasonably common accusation, I think, that is levelled against evangelical churches, that as ministers preach week by week in churches up and down the land, that a number of biblical topics remain overlooked. It's an accusation that we face and we hear reasonably frequent, frequently that as ministers preach, that some biblical subjects get largely ignored. So people allege that it's quite common to hear a sermon about evangelism, isn't it? It really is. And it's also quite uh, common to hear a, a, a sermon about, let's say, marriage. You hear that talked about in the life of the church. But the accusation is that some other biblical topics, they're left alone. <laughs> they're not touched at all. Now, maybe that's true. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. I'm, I'm not here to judge. Maybe it's true, especially if we don't deal with the Bible sequentially, working the way through books. I'm not here to judge. The reason I mention it is this, that this morning, right now, here and now, as we continue in this sermon, this sermon series rather, surely it's the case that we are confronted with a topic that is almost definitely overlooked by the church. A topic this morning that despite, if you think about it, despite its central prominent position in the Sermon on the Mount, a topic that by and large is not preached on often and is ignored in the Christian life. What am I talking about? What subject are we confronted with this morning? That's right, it is the voluntary abstinence of food for a set period of time in order to seek God. This morning we consider fasting fasting so at least we know what we're dealing with this morning that's the matter at hand fasting how are we going to deal with this today uh, at london city presbyterian church well we live in a cosmopolitan city don't we friends we uh, live in a place that's multicultural multi-ethnic and because of that i reckon i can assume that most people in here at some time or the other have either uh, eaten at a spanish restaurant in the past or you have at least maybe walked past a Spanish restaurant at one time or the other. And I hope that's true, because this morning, what I want to do is I want to serve you some tapas just now at LCPC. I wonder if you see what I'm getting at. Instead of the normal structure of a sermon where you are served three courses, uh, three points or three questions this morning, we're going to do something slightly different. What I want to do is lay before you a number of smaller plates, a number of smaller points or smaller questions. I want us to have some tapas together. So are you ready to fill up on fasting? Are you? Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6. Ensure, young and old, that we have God's Word in front of us. Matthew 6, the first plate of tapas. The first question is this very Simple question. Fasting, is fasting still relevant to us? London City Presbyterian Church. Is it? Is fasting still something we should think about? Is it still relevant for us in here? Now I know that, um, as I look around this morning, I know that some are new to the life of the church. And some are new to London City Presbyterian Church. But, so this might not be true for everyone in the room just now. But if you do come to church this morning with some Bible knowledge in your back pocket, you know this, don't you? 
that we see fasting quite prominently throughout the first part of the Bible. We see fasting play quite a prominent role in the Old Testament scriptures. Fasting, this voluntary refraining of food for a certain time to seek God, we see that play quite a role under the Old Covenant. Do you agree with that? At least as a starting point. Kings, like David fasted, right? Queens, like Esther fasted. Individual characters like Daniel fasted. Cities, like Nineveh fasted. The contrite, like Ezra fasted. The conquered, like Israel in Judges fasted. There was compulsory fasting and there was individually chosen fasting. I could go on and on and on like that for quite a long time. But I don't need to because you get the point. In fact, you knew it before you came in here. Fasting plays a big part in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, right? Replete with instances of fasting. So we get that. Here is the objection that runs at us like a steam train at 100 miles an hour. Here's the objection. Quoting Bob Dylan, things have changed. Right? That's the objection that I face right now, you face. People will say to us, but and that was the Old Testament scriptures. And now with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, things have changed. We're not supposed to fast. The objection would roll like this. They would say, after all, Andy, hang on, in Matthew chapter 9, is it not the case that Jesus' disciples were explicitly challenged because they did not fast. So you see the objection. The objection is, okay, there's fasting in the Old Testament, but things have changed. Jesus has come. We don't do it anymore. So what are we going to do with that? Let me push back on that in a number of different ways. First of all, can I ask you, friend, do you know the instance in Matthew 9 that I'm talking about? Do you know the, the instance where John the Baptist's disciples... You remember it? John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they complain to Jesus and say, hang on, we're, we're fasting, but your disciples are not fasting. Do you, do, do, yes, nod with me. Do you, we know that instance? Yes, we do. We do, we do, we do. Can you remember what Jesus says to those men? He says this. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will Fast. So do you see, we have immediate expectation from the Lord Jesus Christ that when he, when he ascends to glory, there's the expectation that his people, his followers, his disciples, they will return to fasting. Right? We've got that. Can I then give you, let me push back a little bit further on that objection. Can I give you an example from the early church? Because here's the easiest question I will ever ask you, ever. Can you have a stab in the dark as to what the church in Antioch did? In Acts 13, when they sent Paul and Barnabas out on a missionary journey. Any guesses what the church in Antioch did in Acts 13? And something that should maybe send shockwaves around our church as we appoint new office bearers in the coming weeks. What did they do before they commissioned these men, Paul and Barnabas? They, they fasted, didn't they? We've got the example of the early church. And then, I think most convincingly, we have got the evidence of the text. Can you look down with me at verse 16? Look at verse 16. What's the second word of verse 16? Do you see? Okay. When you fast. Then look at the second word of verse 17. What does Jesus say? 
He says, when you fast, friends, it's simple in a sense, isn't it? There is, it's a shocking thing though. There is in scripture the clear expectation from our Lord that you and I, at some points of our lives, we will refrain from food, we will abstain from food in seeking God. So what is the answer? Our first question, is fasting still relevant to you? Is fasting still relevant for London City Presbyterian Church? What would you say? You would say with me, yes, it is. Would you not? So we are in this nice little Spanish restaurant and we've eaten our first plate of tapas. The waiter comes, he takes away your little plate of food. You've finished it. He returns beautiful silver service uh, to your table. He lays down a second plate before you. You look down. What is the second question? It is this. What then is the purpose of fasting? If it's relevant to us, What's it all about? What's the purpose of fasting? So we've seen, if you're following me just now, that the Old Testament scriptures, but I'm arguing that all of scripture shows us examples of the people of God fasting. What I want you to appreciate is that not everybody in the Bible fasted for the same reason. You understand that we look at these numerable uh, instances and examples of fasting. But what we find as we study these is that not everyone who fasted in Scripture had exactly... The, it was always before God. It was always Godward. But they did not always have the same goal in view when they fasted. Now, of course, I am not going to go through every single example of, <laughs> of people in Scripture fasting. I'm not going to do that just now. Instead, what I want us to do is just to think about the two main reasons that the the people of God fasted in, in his word. The two main purposes for us, to help us, to arm us with knowledge about fasting. So you'll follow me in these two, will you? The first is this. In scripture, we see that people fasted to confess past sin. And I'm going to ask you to do something just now with me. Would you do this? Would you turn back really quickly to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9? So I've even written down the page number to help us, so we're fast with us. So on page 404, and if the boys and girls can stop their worksheets, if they're doing the worksheets just now, you can turn back, page 404, Nehemiah chapter 9. Now remember what I'm saying as we read this. The people in the Old Testament, they fasted to confess sin. Let's read it together. Everyone got it? Nehemiah 9. Great. Now you picture this scene with me. On the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled. You can just stop there and picture it, right? All of the people of God, the community, young and old, they're all together. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. What were they doing though? They assembled with fasting. And you can see how that plays out. There's sackcloth, there's earth on their heads. Then what do they go on to do? They separate themselves from foreigners. And then you consider this. So they're fasting, they're abstaining from food, and they stood up. And then the community of Israel confessed their sin. They confessed the iniquity of their father. Everyone with me on this, right? Like, why did the people of Israel fast there? Why did they do? It was not they're trying to lose weight. Like it's not a sort of big weight watchers meeting or, or something like that, is it? It's not that they are either trying to 
free up food so that they can provide for the poor. What are they doing there? Do you see the picture here? They are abstaining from food to a sense almost intensify the sincerity of their confession of their sin, their iniquity, their wickedness. It intensifies this contrition before God. Now, what do you see back to me? Do you, do you see right now? But this is just, Andy, one instance in all of the Bible where we see fasting and confession together. Well, allow me to do this and bring it to the boys and girls. I was testing some boys and girls on this uh, this week. But the boys and girls, if you've heard of Saul of Tarsus and what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Do we know that story? Yes, we do. We've got some nods. We remember there was a bright shining light. The Lord Jesus appeared to him. And we remember that Saul is converted. He turns away from his persecution of the church. You know that story. So I'm asking you, do you remember what Saul does? Do you? He is blinded by this light on the road to Damascus. He goes, he goes to a house. He's full of contrition, repentance. And then you are told this in scripture, that for three Full days, Saul of Tarsus, he neither ate nor he drank. And I could, I could spend the next 20 minutes, half an hour going through other examples in scripture of where you see people like you and people like me come to God in confession, intensifying that sincerity in confession by abstaining from food. We're with, were you with me? They confess, they fast and confess. But I said two reasons. So here's the second one. You're ready for the other reason that people in the Bible fast. They fast to call God for future blessing. It was an International Women's Day, wasn't it, this week? So I better use a female example from Scripture or I'll get into trouble, no doubt. But we love in here, don't we, uh, the story of Esther, the book of Esther, Queen Esther. We studied it as a congregation a number of years ago. We love that story. I keep banging on that it's one of the greatest stories ever told. Isn't that the book of Esther? Don't we love it? We know the story. We know how Queen Esther, she battles to free the Jews from that wicked tyrant, Haman. Remember the situation? You remember it all? If you remember that story, I hope that you remember the high point of tension. Do you remember this moment? When Queen Esther is about to enter the presence of the king and to do so unannounced. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember the backstory? The backstory is that the king has previously killed people who enter his presence unannounced. So Esther is understandably scared. She's understandably anxious about this. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Do you remember what Queen Esther does at that very point? She's seeking God's blessing on this moment. What does she do? She asks all of the Jews to fast. Like she goes to all of the people and surely it goes without saying she's asking them to pray and to plead with God. But what does Esther do? She asks all of the community to abstain from food, to seek God's blessing by fasting. You see the idea? Future blessing, a blessing on this next chapter of my life, but through fasting. And then do you say the same thing to me? Do you say, but Andy, that is a one-off instance? But then what is the most obvious thing that I've missed out of this sermon thus far? 
Like, what is the glaring omission from a minister of the gospel this morning? What have I not mentioned? Who else fasted in advance of a critical chapter of their life? You know the answer. What's the answer? Our Lord fasted. Isn't that right? He withdrew prior to his public ministry. He withdrew to the wilderness to seek blessing from his father. What does he do? He commits himself to fasting, pleading with his God. Friends, I hope you see this. The picture in scripture largely is people fasting in confession of past sin, but also calling out for future blessing. And so I must apply it to you. I beg you to listen to me for a second. Friend, is it the case that there is in your life just now serious, unconfessed sin? Is that true of you as you sit here in this room? There is things in your life. There are past atrocities, past wickedness to God that you have never, ever brought to him. Is that the case for you? Or is it different with you? Are you at this moment at a real juncture in your life? Is that right with you? Are you seeking guidance? Are you desperate for blessing on this new critical chapter of your of your life? Then listen, I put it to you that you absolutely, at this point in your life, should be deep in prayer and deep in the study of God's word. But I'm going to go a little bit further this morning. I'm going to put it to you that perhaps you should consider what we're talking about today. And you should consider fasting and fasting before your God. So we've had a plate of relevance and a plate of purpose. But as we carry on, third little bit of tap asked for us here. What should you and I avoid when we're fasting? Like if we're seeing that it's relevant, we're seeing that there's a purpose behind it. What should you and I avoid when we fast? And with this, after a longer delay than normal, I grant you, we get to our text. So if you look down with me at Matthew chapter 6, you surely, even by a cursory glance, you see what Jesus is doing. Jesus here is not so much concerned with whether you are going to fast. It's quite a thought for us to consider that Jesus expects us to be fasting. That's He's not concerned about that. You can see even a cursory glance here. Jesus is concerned for the manner the manner in which you fast, the way that we conduct ourselves. So, let's read verse 16 together very slowly, certainly the first part of it. Verse 16. You got it? And when you fast, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For thee, you see the words? They disfigure their faces. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, if you've been here for any of the recent sermons, you know who the hypocrites are. We've looked in the last few weeks that these are the Pharisees. That's easy. We we know that. Knocked out of the park. We're dealing with the Pharisees. That's easy. What's not so easy is to work out and to visualize what is happening. What did they look like? What's the first part of it? They're gloomy. Uh, the Pharisees, they fasted like twice a week. And the reality is that they used to basically adopt a fasting persona. You know, they used to dress up with solemn expressions when they fast. That's the first part. That's maybe a bit easy. Look at the second part. Not so easy. They disfigured their faces. We can't be 100% sure about that. That 
in the original language, it's got the idea of trying to make themselves invisible. So most likely, most commentators will say that it's applying ash. You see, they're trying to cover their house. Now, regardless of exactly what they look like, what's the most important thing? Why were they doing this? Look at, look at the middle of the verse. Why do they do this? Look gloomy, they cover themselves in ash and dirt. To be seen. To be recognized. And we understand that now, don't we? Like you, you appreciate what the Pharisees are doing here. The Pharisees want recognition as men who fast. And you can see how it would have played out. They want people on the street to stop and look and point with awe at these men to see the covering in the head or the ash and say, they're fasting. These must be pious men. That's what these men want, don't they? These, these men must be spiritual. They must be godly if they are fasting. They did it for sure. Now, as we apply that right now, what's the obvious thing for me to say? My obvious thing to say is that this applies to you and me and fasting. Friend, if you are going to go from this room this morning and to consider implementing fasting in your life, the message there is very clear. You have to watch your heart. You understand? You can't fast looking for recognition from the church, from other people. No, no way. That's the obvious thing to say. But don't we have to stretch this principle out a little bit more? I wonder if you would agree with us that what the Pharisees did there is something that we see in the church in the West in the 21st century all the time. That we see as we look around the church in the 21st century, we see all the time people practicing religion and they're doing it to earn a reputation as being spiritual. Isn't that what you see when you look around? I mean, think about reformed circles in the West. Think about the very atmosphere in a lot of reformed churches. I mean, certainly the case when I was young in Scottish Presbyterianism. You know, six days of the week, I would be surrounded by people who were jolly, fun-loving people. Six days a week. And then that clock would tick into a Sunday, and what would happen very often? We would see exactly what we see with the Pharisees, and there would be an adoption of gloomy expressions and faces. The clock would turn into Sunday, and suddenly people would trudge to church. People who were jolly, they would have a scowl on their face and they would whisper in certain tones. Now, please do not get me wrong. For a lot of those people, that was genuine. But I've got no doubt in my mind for others it was not. And that what was happening there was a concern for reputation. Building a reputation for being spiritual, for being godly, for, for being a godly man, being a godly woman. And we can't point the finger. But if you know your own heart, what do you see? Man, is it the same with you and is it the same with me? I mean, you know what it's like. Maybe we come to church and we dress in a particular way. And if we were to analyze that, what would we see? We do it to win brownie points with, with our family or with the elders or with other people. Or, you know what we do? We boast about what we read sometimes. You know, we brag about the latest theology book that we've been reading. We brag about what we do not do on a Sabbath day. And why are we doing that a lot of the time? Do you see the sin? It's exposed. Why do we do it? 
So often we are concerned for building a reputation for ourselves. What's the question? What do we avoid when fasting? What do we avoid when practicing a religion? We avoid being overly concerned for the recognition from our fellow men. And the fourth plate, the restaurant's clearing near the end of the night. The fourth plate, uh, how then should you and I fast? If we've seen what we're not to do when we're fast, how should we fast? Do, do you think that as we continue in the text here, if you, if you look down, do you agree that it's quite interesting to see what Jesus does? In a sense, with reverence, of course, we could say to our Lord that we get the idea. That we understand from what he has said, we understand that we are not to make a show of our fasting. We could say to Jesus there, at this point, we could say we get it. So don't you agree that it's quite interesting to see how Jesus handles this? It is so important, this, to our Lord, that he spells out exactly what he wants to see from you and from me when we fast. So I want you to read it with me. Look at verse 17, please. Verse 17. He's told us what not to do. Now, what does he say? He says, but when you do fast, and then he gives you specific instructions... Anoint your head. Then wash your face that your fasting may not be seen. I want to tread very carefully because we are so prone to overreaction. Don't you think? In circles like ours. We are adept at pointing out error in other Christians and how other churches practice their religion. We're adept at that. What we tend to do is we react so far from that, react in the other way that we sometimes stray into error in the opposite direction. And there's a danger of that here, I think. So I'll put it to you. I'll ask you a question. What do you think Jesus is imploring you to do in verse 17? When he says to you, when you fast, anoint your head, anoint your head, wash your face. What do you think we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to engage in special washing ceremonies when we're fasting? Are we supposed to go and buy some special perfume when we're going to fast? I'll just quote you John Calvin. John Calvin says this. Christ does not withdraw us from one kind of hypocrisy only to lead us into another form of hypocrisy. So the idea here isn't that instead of looking gloomy, that we're supposed to adopt a really stupid smile when we fast. It's not the case that instead of putting ash on our faces that we're supposed to dress up. What is the idea before us? The Lord surely sent us, do nothing special. Isn't the idea? Isn't that it? Jesus said that when you fast, do as you usually do. Like do your normal cleansing routine. Do your normal process of hygiene. Do nothing special. And then we look to see, well, why, Lord? Why? And he tells you in verse 18 that your fasting may not be seen, but may be seen by your Father in secret. And I think that's it. That's the heart of it. That's the beating crux of this section of Scripture. What is Christ saying? What does he want from us? He wants us to see that this is this is before our God. That when we fast, it is not a matter for you and the world. It is not a matter between you and the church and you and your family and you and your friends. 
We do nothing special because this is a private matter. This is a secret matter between you and the Lord God Almighty. And then I'm going to do this. I'm going to end just with this very short thing because I don't know about you, but see, when I finish a meal at a restaurant, the once every 10 years we'll go out for a meal at a restaurant, I want a sneaky coffee at the end of it. So I'm going to sneak in a last question just as we end. And it's it's going to sound a very strange and peculiar question. And it's this. What, though, of the compulsory fast? Does anyone understand what I'm talking about? What, though, of the compulsory fast? Because as I end, and I promise you I end with this, think back to the first reading that we had of Holy Scripture today. Do you remember what it was? It was Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. Now, I know that was a very, very complicated portion of Scripture, but I also know you got it, didn't you? You saw that that was an ancient ceremony where the people of Israel put their hands on a goat, an animal, send the animal away as symbolically transferring their sin to the animal, and the animal is removed, symbolizing God's removal of their sin. Right? We, we get the Day of Atonement. Here's my question to you. What were the people of Israel told, commanded to do in that ceremony? Did anyone notice it? Does anyone tie up the dots? In verse 29 of Leviticus 16, they were commanded by God as an enduring act that every year on the Day of Atonement, they were to afflict themselves. They were commanded every year at that ceremony to fast. There was a compulsory fast for the people of God. So I end with this. Here's a question. And it's not a question for everyone in the room. It is a question only for those in here who are not professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not repented of their sins and come to Jesus Christ. Here's the question for you. Put your thinking caps on. Why, if there was a compulsory fast for the people of God, why do we not do that today at London City Presbyterian Church? Does everyone understand the question if god says in scripture this is an enduring day of atonement every single year i want you to do this and i want you to fast as part of it why is it that lcpc we do not do that do you want the answer it's a great answer it is because the day of atonement has been fulfilled is that great news for the people of god in here Isn't it? What do we know? We know that that ancient ceremony was just a picture. A picture of a day that was going to come. A miraculous day. A day when God would send his son to be that sinless. Listen to the words. That once and for all sacrifice to bear his people's sin. To remove the sin. And if you are not a Christian this morning. I wonder if you see what that means for you. What God requires of you is not some religious devotion. What God requires of you for salvation is not that you fast. What God requires of you today is that you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. That you recognize that by your nature you offend 
God. You are tarnished by your nature. You recognize that wonderful sin-bearing work of Jesus. And now, today, by faith, you cast yourself on the Son of God. Friend, will you not at least give that genuine and sincere consideration this morning? In fact, more than that, will you not come to Christ today and know in him real feeding, true feeding, the sole nourishment of everlasting life? Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to an end of this section of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And we're thankful for the way that you have in the past taught us about the heresies in the theology of the Pharisees. We thank you now that we've looked at three sections where their practice is contrasted with what you long to see from us, your people. So we thank you for that. But more than that, we thank you for what awaits us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by his sin-bearing death, by repentance and faith in him, by all of your grace, in the future we will not fast, but we will feast. And we will feast together as the covenant community in heaven above. Lord, we pray these things, worshiping you as the God of redemption. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.